be with you here this morning. Uh, your pastor, Matt Watson, has become a dear friend of mine. Uh, he not only tolerates me, but for some reason uh, is willing to spend time with me. And so it is a privilege to finally come together with the church I know he loves so dearly and to worship with you and have the privilege then of uh, opening the Word of God for you here this morning. Uh, but with uh, this in mind, brothers and sisters, let us open in God's Word to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11, this morning we'll be looking at verses 19 to 25. And while you're turning there, I, I thought it was good. It, it's, it's the beginning of the year. We're entering into 2022 here as a church family. I thought it would be good for us to begin by considering a question, re reflecting for a moment on why does the church gather together for worship? Why do we, week after week after week after week, come through those doors, sit down in these pews, sing to God, uh, pray, uh, hear the Word of God preach? Why are we doing this? Because if you're like me, this is simply what you've been doing for years. Most of us have been coming to church, and what we do in worship has become familiar. It's, it's, it's routine. And so we really don't think about what we're doing. We really don't think of why we're doing it. And to be honest, it can become easy for us to simply go through the motions. So I am convinced that Christians in general and churches today need to take some time and recover and reflect upon what happens when we worship. So that's going to be the question we consider this morning. What happens when the church gathers together for worship? And our answer this morning here comes from Hebrews chapter 10. So let us then read together Hebrews 10 verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, before we continue, let us again come before the throne of God in prayer together. Oh, Lord, what a blessing it is for us to gather as Christ church this morning, and yet how easily this can become a weekly routine in our lives. Lord, may it not be so this morning, but we ask that you speak to us 
as your word is preached, that we will come to recognize why we are gathered here this morning and every Lord's Day that you have given us to worship you. So, Father, we pray that you will remove any distractions from our minds, that you will open our hearts then to receive your truth so we can live our lives glorifying you for the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. Father, I ask you, help me as the preacher to become your mouthpiece so your people will hear your word through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And Father, I ask these things then in the name of our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, why does this church gather for worship? It's because Christ opens the entrance into God's presence for us to worship Him. Do you realize that we are in God's presence here and now? Christ has opened the entrance into God's presence for us to worship Him as a church. And I want us to see here that in Christ we have this privilege and blessing of entering into God's presence in heaven itself for us to worship Him, which we see here in this passage through three let us statements. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of the vegetable lettuce we make salad from. I'm speaking of let us, the urgings that we receive here as Christ church through these verses. And so there's three let us statements in these verses, and I'm going to structure my sermon with them, right? So the first let us statement we read is, is actually in verse 22, but it's let us draw near. Let us draw near. And then the second let us statement is in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession. Let us hold fast the confession. And then third and finally, in verse 24, the third let us statement, let us consider one another. So let us draw near, let us hold fast the confession, and let us consider one another. So let's, let's start with that first statement. Let us draw near by looking at verses 19 to 22. And for many of you, you may already be familiar with the book of Hebrews here, but it was originally written to a Jewish church that was being tempted to forsake their faith in Christ and return to Judaism because of the hardships and the suffering that they were wrestling over. Which is why the author here responds by writing a powerful message upholding the supremacy of Christ over all things. Because if they lose Christ, they lose everything. So Hebrews reminds this church that Christ is better than anything the Old Testament sacrificial system had to offer. Because it could never take away the sins of God's people. The Jewish worship was futile and worthless by itself. See, as they watched the priests 
and, and carry out their ongoing daily offerings there where animals would be slaughtered and their blood would then pour down the altar of sacrifice. These worshipers were constantly reminded of their sins and of the need for their sins' forgiveness. Which is why, of course, God became man in the person of Jesus Christ to make a better covenant with us. A once for all offering of Christ for us. As he sacrifices himself on the cross for our sins. So that we then are forgiven of our sins. That, 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 that Christ himself lives the perfect life of righteousness. We refuse to live in our sin. And then takes upon himself the very punishment we deserve for our rebellion against God as he dies in our place on the cross. And since our sins have been paid for by Christ, and God promises to remember our sins no more, what should we do? And the answer is draw near to God in worship. But before we come to this first let us statement, in verse 22, we read how the gates of heaven have been opened for us to enter into God's presence, right? And so we begin with verse 19, therefore, brothers, now let's stop there for a moment, because here we find that with Christ's completed offering for our sin, we are now brothers and sisters in Christ, in God's family of faith. He's adopted us as his children, and he is now our heavenly father. So he's no longer a judge who condemns us, but a father who loves us. And as God's children, what can we do? We go on to read, enter the holy places. We enter the holy places. And this is drawn from the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, which was the specific place that God gave His people, Israel, to meet with Him. So back in Exodus chapter 25, we read of God's instruction for the tabernacle to Moses when He was speaking to Moses of, of building the tabernacle. And listen to Exodus 25 verse 8, and let them make me a sanctuary. Why? that I may dwell in their midst. God wanted to dwell with His people. Which is why in the center of the tabernacle was a room called the Holy Place. And this is where the Ark of the Covenant was found, which symbolized God's throne. Yet there were veils Curtains all around the holy place to show the division between God's holiness and mankind's sinfulness. So even when Israel enters the promised land and settles there, we find the same with the building of the temple, with God promising to continue meeting with Israel in His temple. So it's through both the tabernacle and the temple that God's presence would be found among His people. And it was here that they would meet with God in worship. 
But listen, they were far too sinful to enter the holy place. The high priest is the only one that could enter the holy place, and he could only do so once a year to represent God's people as he sprinkled the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat of the ark. Well, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our great high priest who has entered into the holy place of heaven itself with his sacrificial blood so that we receive mercy. Do you see then that Israel's tabernacle and temple were but earthly shadows, the greater heavenly reality. And this is a reality that we now enjoy in Christ. This is why Matthew records in his gospel that when Jesus died on the cross, Matthew 27, 51, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom because there is no longer in Christ a veil separating us from the presence of God, which is why we can confidently enter into God's presence. Did you hear that? We read in this verse, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, we have confidence, boldness, freedom to enter the holy places. But where does such confidence come from? We can look at the end of the verse. It's by the blood of Jesus. See, it's nothing we have done. It's nothing we have earned. It's, it, it's nothing we have accomplished that gives us access to the holy places of God's presence. But it is by the blood of Jesus alone that God welcomes us into His presence, which then brings us to verse 20, where we read that this is a new and living way. This entrance into God's presence is a new and living way that we are given access to God's presence that His Old Testament people never had outside of Christ. And this access continues then through the eternal life that we have in Christ. Because this entrance has been opened for us by Christ. That we can enter this new and living way because Christ went before us and He opened the curtain. Do you see that? He opened for us through the curtain. That is, through His flesh. What separates us from God? His death has opened the curtain through His flesh that hung on the cross for us. And since Christ has gone before us as our great high priest into this heavenly temple, His church now has the right to also enter through the veil of His flesh to come in the very presence of God Himself. But I ask you, is this true of you? Is this true of you, that you are entering into the very presence of God 
by the blood of Jesus. Because without Jesus, there is no forgiveness of sin. Without Jesus, there is no opening of access to God. Without Jesus, you remain under God's wrath for your sin. And it doesn't matter how many times you come through these doors. It doesn't matter how faithful you are to come to this church and worship. Your access and entrance into God's presence is completely through the blood of Christ. So if you are not coming into God's presence by Christ and His blood this morning, oh, I ask you, I plead with you, come to Christ. Come to Christ by turning away from your sins and repentance and turning to Christ by faith. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who in love poured Himself out for sinners like you and me. Because it is through Christ that we are reconciled with God and can confidently enter into His presence. Do you see then the glory of having Christ as our great high priest? That he has opened the gates of heaven for us to enter his presence. And this is described here in this verse, verse 21, as the house of God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the tabernacle and temple were regularly called the house of God. Why? Because a house is where someone dwells. So if I was to invite all of you over to the DeVito house, and please don't all come together, but if I was to invite you over to my house, what would you expect? That you are welcome to come over where I live and spend time with my family. Do you see then that through Christ... God now welcomes you into His house, His house in heaven, to spend time with Him in worship. It's amazing, gracious, glorious truth to reflect upon, isn't it? And it's because all of this is true of believers in Christ that we come to verse 22 in the first let us statement. Because of Christ and all we have in Christ, verse 22, let us draw near. Let us draw near to God to enter into His presence. Now, it's interesting to think about what God's presence means. Because in one sense, everybody already lives in God's presence, right? Theologically, we speak of God being omnipresent, or He's present everywhere. So in this sense, no one and nothing exists outside of God's presence. But that's not the only way we talk about God's presence. As Christians, we realize there's another way in which God is present with us, that He's not present with the rest of the world. 
Because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us as believers in Christ. So we also know that God is present with His people in a way He is not present with the rest of His creation or with humanity generally. Because this presence begins when the Holy Spirit regenerates our souls and we believe in Christ, which then continues through our lives in this world. But there's still another way we speak of God's presence. Because there's another way in which we are not yet in His presence. Which is why we need to draw near to God and enter into His presence. You see, we are still waiting to enter into the fullness of God's presence when Christ returns and the dawning of our eternal future begins. Listen to how the Apostle John portrays the coming heavens and new earth in Revelation 21 verse 3. Of course, our uh, brother and, and pastor Matt has recently preached through this. You may remember this verse, but Revelation 21 verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. So this eternal dwelling in God's presence is in our future. What then do we see in Hebrews 10, 22? It's that we can taste this eternal future in God's presence now as the church gathers for worship when we draw near to God as His people in worship. And how do we draw near? Well, there's four things which should be true of us as we draw near. We go on to read them in this verse. Verse 22, let us draw near first with a true heart. Because Christ gives us new hearts to believe and trust in Him, which then is a heart of sincere love and devotion to God, which we receive through the Holy Spirit. But not only are we to draw near with a true heart, we're to draw near in full assurance of faith, which means we have a certainty of Christ's saving work for us, which we gain through believing in Him. This assurance of our salvation in Christ, which then is true because of the next two that we read. We're to draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Third, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. This is what Christ's death for us has accomplished. That our sinful hearts were cleansed through the cross, which is then applied to our conscience when we believe in Christ. And finally then, we draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Now, many believe this refers to baptism, and that is possible, but I think its Old Testament roots point us in a different direction. See, with Christ as our great high priest, we ourselves become priests, able to enter into God's presence for worship. That's what this washing of water refers to. 
Listen to how the priests were prepared to enter God's presence in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 29, verse 4, there we read, You shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and wash them with water. And then we go on to read later in that chapter, verse 21, Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and on his sons' garments with him. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him. You see then how Hebrews is building on this imagery from the priesthood in the Old Testament to show us our own priesthood. Because with the coming of Christ, we are all priests as our hearts are sprinkled with Christ's blood and our bodies are washed with pure water. That's why in the, the, the Protestant Reformation, we have this great call of the priesthood of all believers. We don't have to go to the priest as the one who can connect us with God or as the one who can bridge the gap so that we can draw near to God. But we are all priests with the freedom to enter into God's presence in worship. But brothers and sisters, I want us to stop and consider how we can misunderstand this passage. Because we can individualize it. In other words, we read this, let us draw near as individuals. So this drawing near we read of, we think of as my privately drawing close to Christ, by myself as a believer. But remember, this letter is written to a church. And so we should primarily read this as, let us draw near as a church. The context of these verses is the worship of God by His people using Old Testament types and shadows of Israel's earthly worship in the tabernacle and temple to point us to our heavenly worship in God's presence. So we draw near to God together as Christ's church. And when this church gathers together in worship, we enter into God's heavenly presence as a preview of our eternal future in Christ. In other words, in our corporate worship, this church is spiritually lifted up to heaven so that you will meet with God. Now, I know most of you don't know me, but our brother Matt does. And others here may. And if you know me very well, you know that I'm a Trekkie. I love Star Trek. Uh, and one of the most famous lines from Star Trek was actually never said in Star Trek. But it's, beam me up, Scotty. Now, Scotty was the person on the original Enterprise that was in the transporter room. And when you'd have people from the ship that would need to be transported to a, uh, off the ship to a world, 
He would be the one that would transport them, which would then instantly move their bodies physically so they would rematerialize in a new place. I think that's interesting. Because when this church gathers together in worship, listen, you are being spiritually transported into heaven. You can think of it this way. In the call to worship at the beginning of our service this morning, your souls were lifted up to the holy places of heaven where you are now in God's presence. And here we are continuing to commune with God in heaven. Listen, God is present with us right now while we are with Him in the heavens. And this continues through this worship service until the closing benediction of blessing, which God gives to have pronounced over us, where we are then lowered back down to earth for us to live our lives in this world. You see what a privilege that it is that Christ has opened for us as his church. That we meet with God when we gather in his presence. So that's the first let us statement. Let us draw near. But there's two more, right? The second let us statement is given in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession. So what else are we to do as Christ's church? But hold fast to grip and not let go because of how precious God's Word is to us in Scripture. So we confess Christ as our Savior by believing the gospel and then commit to keeping all of His words as they are revealed to us as His people. And this is summarized here in this verse is the confession of our hope. So do you see that Christianity is a future-focused faith? That we live as Christians waiting for our eternal future to come. And this coming hope then gives us the proper perspective to then endure and even enjoy life in this sin-cursed world as we struggle and suffer through our lives. Because here's the reality we go on to read in verse 23, that the confession of our hope can waver. It can waver. That we start to wonder if the gospel is true. And if our gospel blessings in Christ will really come. That's why as Christians we can begin to doubt God. We can begin to doubt His goodness and grace. So that our confession of hope wavers. Oh no, but we do not want such confession to waver. We want it to continue and strengthen. That's why we are to encourage to hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who promised 
is faithful. This is why there's no need for our confession of hope to waver. Because God is faithful to His promises. Yes, some may remain unfulfilled, but His promises are completely reliable and will be kept. Now, earlier in Hebrews, we read of God's promise to Abraham with an oath. This is back in Hebrews chapter 6, and there in verses 17 and 18, listen to these words. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to what? The hope set before us. God has kept His promises, and He will keep His promises. And it's as we wait, then, for God's promises to come that we should remember Christ is now sitting on His throne in heaven, sovereignly reigning over this world until He returns, when we will finally receive God's promises to us as our inheritance, because we are His beloved children. So that when we gather then in worship, we hold fast the confession of our hope through a steadfast commitment to the Word of God, which then fills every element of our time together. One of the things I love about being with you this morning is how saturated with the Bible this worship service is. Unfortunately, that's not true in many worship services today, is there? but we rightly seek to hold fast the confession of our hope. Which is why through the years and the centuries, Christ's church has sought to summarize biblical teaching through creeds and confessions of faith and catechisms, which in some churches are even recited during their worship service. But why? So that we uphold the faith and pass on the faith from generation to generation until Christ returns. And He unites heaven and earth into one. May we then live by this hope in Christ and our commitment to His truth. Oh, how thankful I am for your pastors and their commitment to lead this church in worship according to God's Word. But listen, this is a confession of hope that the entire church must share in Christ. Let us hold fast the confession is an encouragement for all of you, for all believers in Christ. So when your church gathers together in worship, is your mind and heart invested in singing of the confession of our hope? Are you coming to church prepared to hear from God's Word and His promises to you through Christ? Because it is as you worship in God's presence together that you receive Christ's grace and are then strengthened to not waver in the confession of our hope. So again, we began with the first let us, let us draw near. 
John continues with the second, let us, let us hold fast the confession. But this finally brings us in verses 24 and 25 to the third, let us, let us consider one another. This is the third let us statement, because we are to live out the Christian life together as a church by loving one another as the church. And if you were paying close attention, you may recognize that these three calls to let us correspond to the three great graces of the Christian life, faith, hope, and love. So let me make a controversial but a crucial statement for you to consider this morning, that Christianity is not primarily about my personal relationship with Jesus. Now that may sound strange and even scary to you, but Christianity is not primarily about my personal relationship with Jesus. Christianity is primarily about a community of faith that Christ has unified by His death to grow in grace together. That's why, as is so often said, there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian. Christ saves us to bring us into His body, the church. And so we are the body of Christ then who consider one another by focusing on each other's spiritual needs. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul expands on this truth when he writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when we read in verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another, we come to recognize why we are to consider and care for one another as a church. First, because we are to stir up love. Stir up love among one another, where Christians encourage and motivate love here in the body of Christ. Since Christ loved us, we are then joined together to become a people of love. And we have a responsibility then to strengthen and deepen our love towards God and our love towards one another. We also need to see that when we stir up love, good works will result. That our love will be expressed in good works, which will then help to support our church family as we struggle and suffer in this world. Which brings us then to verse 25, which answers the question, how then? How will we consider one another? And the answer, by now may be clear, it's by meeting together in God's presence. See, it's as we worship together as the church that we stir up love and good works. So our worship is not only vertical with us drawing near to God, but our worship is also horizontal, where we help each other draw near to God. 
And this is why we all need then to meet together for worship as a church. And it's why it's dangerous for us to neglect meeting together. Do you realize that neglecting the meeting of Christ's church, it, it's not merely a hypothetical problem. What, what do we read in verse 25? In verse 25, we read, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. This is a real danger for believers in Christ. See, our sinful flesh may lead us to neglect meeting together with the church for worship. After all, we may think, I have the Bible. I can read the Bible. I can pray by myself. I can sing hymns on my own. I can worship God together with my family and friends. But without coming to the weekly meetings of worship with God's people, I am much more likely to abandon my faith through the temptations and trials of life. Because when we meet together, we read here, as verse 25 continues, that we are encouraging one another. We are encouraging one another to faithfulness in the midst of our sinful struggles and our challenging circumstances and our tough temptations. You know, the truth is, I have never met a spiritually mature and joyful Christian who wasn't a committed member of a local church, faithful in coming to the meetings, regularly coming to the meetings of worship. Why? Because we need one another to live this life well. We need the support of one another in the church more and more as we engage in a spiritual battle waiting for the return of Christ and His coming day of judgment, which is why we go on to read, and all the more should we meet together and not neglect meeting together as you see the day drawing near. It's this coming day that we see drawing near by faith. But we all know waiting isn't easy, which is why we need one another to not fail or fall away from our faith in Christ. So neglecting our churches meeting together endangers our souls by repeating the sin of Israel as they abandoned the Lord in their sin. To why then in Hebrews this is given as a warning for us to not follow in the way of Israel, but to draw near to God through Christ. You see, when Christ returns, it will be a joyous time of celebration for those who are saved but it will be a sobering time of judgment for those who remain in their sin. So this brings us back to the question with which we began. What happens when the church gathers together for worship? Why do we gather as a church for worship? It's because Christ opens the entrance 
into God's presence for us to worship Him. Christ opens the entrance for us to come in God's presence and to meet with God and receive His grace through our worship. It is Christ, then, who gives us a weekly invitation to enter into God's presence when the church gathers to worship. And listen, this is a unique opportunity for us to meet with God, which cannot happen anywhere else in our lives, and which we neglect or forsake to our own danger and peril. How opposite this is. This understanding of the Christian life is from the way that many Christians think today. But we can foolishly think, I can draw near to Christ on my own. I don't need the church to worship God. But what God tells us through His Word is that we must meet with Him as His people. Because God promises to, that, that we enter into His heavenly presence as we worship together as Christ's church. It's why... The Puritans often understood this. The great England, English Puritans, uh, one of them, uh, the great 17th century Puritan pastor David Clarkson, uh, once preached a sermon with a, with a title that would be very controversial today. Listen to this title. Clarkson's sermon was titled, Public Worship is to be Preferred Before Private. Wait a minute. You're saying meeting in worship here on Sundays is more important than my personal quiet devotion time at home? Yes. Yes. His sermon was drawn from Psalm 87, verse 2, which reads, The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. And Clarkson shows from this verse that the Lord loves the public worship of His gathered people in the temple of Jerusalem more than the private worship as individuals or families in the homes of Jacob. And since the coming of Christ, we enter the heavenly gates of Zion whenever a church gathers to worship Him which means that we do not enter into God's special presence through our personal devotions, through our small group Bible studies, or through online worship services. But we enter into God's special presence when the church of Christ gathers to worship. We enter into God's presence when we gather together in Christ's name to worship Him. So let me share with you then three pastoral recommendations quickly to, to consider in, in how we then live out this truth in our lives as Christians. And uh, to help them, keep them easy to remember, there are three P's, all right? Three P's. Prioritize, prepare, and pray. Uh, first, prioritize the church's worship gathering in your schedule. You know, if you look at most of the statistics that are out there, 
they will say that Christians are attending church less regularly than they have in the past. It used to be the average Christian would attend worship four times a month. Now it's down to three times a month or even less for many Christians today. But when we have this understanding of entering into God's presence when the church worships, what else in life is worth missing God's invitation to meet with Him in heaven? to enjoy and be refreshed by Christ's grace. So prioritize the church's worship gatherings in your schedule. Second, prepare the night before. Benefiting from Sunday is often a Saturday decision. So Saturday evenings are not time to stay out late with others. It's not time to binge watch the latest show on Netflix or Disney+. Plus. Saturday is a time to prepare to enter into God's presence with His people as the church gathers to worship. So prioritize, prepare, and finally pray. Pray for God's blessings upon your corporate worship together as a church. Pray for the the leadership and your pastors as they lead you to enter into God's presence and worship. Pray. I love how Jonathan Cruz summarizes this truth in, in an excellent book, What Happens When We Worship. Listen to what Cruz writes. Worship is never dull but we are sometimes. Church-going is monotonous and mundane only because our eyes are blinded to the supernatural wonder that is taking place all around us. The reality is that worship is an exhilarating experience. So we don't need smoke machines, more lights, dramatic presentations, louder music, mystical theology, or entertaining speakers to make worship exciting but we simply need to understand what's going on in the first place. May we be a people who understand what's going on in the first place, that when the church gathers for worship, Christ opens the entrance into God's presence for us to worship Him in the heavenly places. Let us pray.